This is the Right Way Podcast. Right Way Podcast. The 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 Right Way Podcast. Hi, I'm Chris Hammer, and my new book, Treasure and Dirt, is just out now. And I'm on the Right Way Podcast talking to Samuel Elliott all about it, except with no spoilers. Yeah, thank you so much for the introduction there, Chris Hammer, and hello to everyone out there in digital land listening to this particular episode of the Right Way Podcast program with me, your host. I'm not going to say the host of the most, but certainly a host of this uh, intrepid little podcast program. The person whom you just heard introducing this episode is none other than today's guest, who was Chris Hammer. Chris Hammer has... Uh, certainly established himself within the Australian sort of uh, crime thriller noir sphere with uh, several of his hugely successful, deservedly hugely successful uh, novels featuring protagonist Martin Skarsden, a uh, journalist who uh, doesn't mind ruffling feathers to get to the bottom of these baffling cases in which he finds himself involved in. But uh, unlike the last few novels that Chris has written in relation to uh, focusing with Martin Skarsden, as the uh, main character. The novel that I talked to him about today is Treasure and Dirt. Treasure and Dirt is a standalone novel that features, I'd say, two main characters. Uh, one is a Sydney homicide detective, Ivan Lukic, and the other is an inexperienced young investigator, Nell Buchanan. Both of them are investigating a baffling and brutal case uh, within set within fictional Finnegan's Gap, which is heavily inspired by Lightning Ridge, as you'll hear from me talking to Chris about his inspiration and how he set up uh, these incredibly well-realized, immensely realized settings in which he creates. And uh, yeah, so that's that's what we discussed, Treasure and Dirt. So yeah, everyone give a big digital round of applause to uh, crime, Australian noir writer, thriller writer, Chris Hammer, discussing with me his latest standalone novel, Treasure and Dirt. Chris Hammer, thank you so much for joining me on the Right Way podcast, the program this afternoon, man. How are you going? Very well, very well. Thank you for having me on. Absolute pleasure to have you on. Um, look, first and foremost, I always like to start with an oldie but a goodie is where did the idea for Treasure and Dirt originate from? Where did it stem from the mind of Chris Hammer? Uh, who knows? Um, the, uh, I, I think some of the crime elements just came from me trying to work out a way of having two separate crimes and two separate perpetrators working without knowledge of the other. Mm. So that's a bit vague and obscure, but the setting is this little, uh, it's a fictional town, but it's not a million miles away from Lightning Ridge. It's like a smaller, wilder version of Lightning Ridge. It's called Finnegan's Gap. And I'd originally thought about travelling to South Australia to, to set a book over there, somewhere like the Flinders Ranges. But COVID hit and all the borders were shut. And I live in Canberra. And the only, the only other state I could get to was New South Wales. And I was just down at a local shop and I saw a woman with an opal pendant. And I thought, oh, an opal mining town, that's perfect. Because I could have, have a sort of storyline that I'd started thinking about with a big mining, industrial mining, but then I could have some sort of one-man band type miners too. So those two, so I travelled up to Lightning Ridge July last year and look around it and the idea of that sort of vague nebulous idea about a crime with unconnected perpetrators started gelling in with the location and then it kind of 
started evolving from there. Interesting. It's interesting as well that COVID kind of almost worked out in a beneficial sense for you because it was like you were going to go to South Australia, but then ended up going to New South Wales because that was the only place sort of uh, not denied you, I guess. And then you saw the opal pendant and it was all kind of fell into place there a little bit. Yeah. And, and, and look, this, um, so this book, Treasure and Dirt, is a standalone book. So mm. it's got a new new perpetrators, uh, not perpetrators, protagonists. Um, so the first three books, Scrubland, Silver and Trust, mm. have uh, Martin Scarston, you know, a journalist, and his partner, Mandalay Blonde. This has got two police officers, a homicide detective called Ivan Lukic mm. and, a, and a newly minted detective from out west called Nell Buchanan. And they're New South Wales police officers you know, if I'd set this book in South Australia, they would have been South Australian police officers, which would then mean if I wanted to continue the series, I'd have to keep going back to South Australia, which uh, given I live in Canberra, New South Wales is a bit more doable. So that's probably another fortuitous thing that's come out of COVID. Well done. And it's interesting. I do want to kind of delve into that as well about the introduction of the new sort of characters as well being a standalone novel, but I want to still talk a little bit about the creation of Finnegan's Gap because, yeah, I did see in the acknowledgements that you mentioned about uh, going to Lightning Ridge, Boots on Ground. There also looked to be, like, you you thanked an opal miner themselves that kind of took you down there. Tell me a little bit about this sort of research process, Chris, and what you did there. So I'm not overly, you know, emphatic about research. Mm. I mean, I don't think you need to research everything down to the nth degree, but you need to know enough that to lend authenticity to what you're writing. Mm. So I went up there and the first thing I did is I went into the Miners Federation uh, there or the Miners Co-op and, um, and asked us if there were any miners who might be willing to take me down their mines and give me a, just give me a, a quick look at, what it looks like, how they operate, you know, what, what the rules are, what the laws are, what the economics are, what the geology is, et cetera, et cetera. That, and that was really useful. I, I really don't think I could have done it just, you know, by Google. Um, and then I picked up other things too. So the book starts with a prologue. And we're at this town, Finnegan's Gap, or outside of it, in the opal fields. And we're with a crew of ratters who are down a mine. Now, ratters are a real thing. Uh, they're the lowest of the low. They're opal thieves. They sneak down other miners' claims. So people they know in a small town like that. And they plunder their opals. You know, they get a whiff that someone's had a good find. Um, but that came from that first day. I walked into the Miners um, Federation and there's a big sign on the wall, sort of dobbing a ratter or something like that. And, and I, of course, saying, well, what's a ratter? And they told me and I went, oh, that, that's good. That's good. I could use that. It's crazy that it expanded on to kind of, I felt like you'd researched quite a lot as well. I mean, like I know you say that you don't have to have everything down pat to, to start. But I mean, like all this sort of um, the rare earth trade, lots of things that I knew nothing about, Chris, until I started reading and the way in which you sort of explain it within the scope of the narrative, like this like us sort of consortium and all these sort of backdoor dealings. It all felt uh, very authentic, authentically opaque in the sort of murky world that 
kind of uh, is innately tied to that, all that sort of stuff. So is that something that kind of, again, derived from your own imagination or did you do research as you started gaining momentum with it? How did that sort of go down? Look, that's, um, it's more background knowledge. So mm. you're right, it, like, like my previous book says, multiple storylines here. Mm. So the first one is, I, I, sh- I should just flesh that out a bit. The book starts, there are these ratters down a mine mm. and they discover the body of an opal miner who has not only been murdered, but has been crucified. And so they hightail it out of there, but they do do the right thing. They make an anonymous tip off to the police. Hey, there's this bloke, he's been murdered down his opal mine. So that's one plot strand, if you like. This guy, what's happened to him? Another, I guess, touches on the ratters themselves, but there's also this other storyline with these big, larger-than-life mining billionaires. And they're kind of manipulating the stock market and, mm. the, uh, and they're interested in the global commodities trade and stuff like that. So it's a totally different level than, you know, your hard scrabble, one-man band, opal miner, right? So it's a real contrast there. But the, I did just have background knowledge, I think, from years of being a journalist mm. on the stock market and stock market manipulations. I had done stories on that area as a journalist. And I was also aware of the, um, of the strategic value globally of some commodities. Um, and so it's touched on in the book. So for example, at the moment, there's a lot of appetite for lithium because it's mm. used in all our batteries, batteries in yeah. our laptops, in our phones or whatever. But there's also a lot of interest in, a, in what's known as rare earth minerals uh, that are used in all sorts of high-tech applications, including military applications. And the supply manufacturer of them is totally dominated by China. And it's mm. got, so that has uh, meant a lot of concern uh, in Western countries, particularly the United States. So that's all a real thing. But it wasn't something I had. It was something I already had in the background knowledge. So a bit of online research, and I was okay, I think, with that. Yeah. Fingers crossed. <laughs> I, I'm very much more than okay. And I could, I'm, certainly I thought that maybe that uh, the provenance of being in Jono for 30-odd years uh, definitely would have helped flesh out some of that, or you would have already had quite a lot of sort of knowledge just through osmosis or whatever you've sort of written there throughout that period. Tell me a little bit more, Chris, about... Because with you... I wondered if your process, the chicken and the egg type situation, because with you, I'm like, does it start off with characters or does it start off with the settings? And the reason I said the latter is because it feels like these settings themselves, not just within this, but within Scrublands, everywhere, all, all the books of yours that I've read, it's, it's like walking into a real place in terms of how realized it is. And I know that, like, obviously you went to Lightning Ridge, but tell me a little bit about the process because there was one line and I thought that kind of really summed up nicely it was something like the the land's too big, the sky's too big. There's just too many room for too many places for secrets. And I thought that that kind of really summed up nicely what you were going for there. The mission statement of Chris Hammer, as it were, for Finnegan's Gap. Yeah, the <clears throat> part of creating a town and creating a setting is mm. uh, is to help the plot along. So the reason I didn't base it 
in Lightning Ridge is because I could make the place smaller, I could make it wilder, I could change the geography to suit the plot. So there's the town Finnegan's Gap and then there's these two spurs going off where the opal fields are. Um, there's a large sort of dry lake uh, nearby, like a salt pan that also plays a role in the story. So you can create the landscape to fit the story. And, and once again, the book has a fantastic map in the front drawn mm. by Alexander Potochnik. Um, so that's good just as a, to help the plot. But then the setting helps set the mood. It helps set the motivations of the characters. In a strange way, it kind of feeds back into the writing process. So it's influencing the way I'm visualising things, how I'm visualising characters. So it's almost like you've got these components, you know, there's plot, there's character, there's setting, there's whatever. But then they all kind of mix together and, and hopefully, you know, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts because they start reinforcing each other. So I think setting's important. My, my last book, Trust, it's different. It's set in Sydney. Mm. And so because, <clears throat> let's face it, it would have been ridiculous if I'd tried to invent a fictitious city of four or five million people on the east coast of Australia. I mean, what's the point of that? So I thought, ah, this time I'm, I'm locked into a real place. But then I realised that's not really true. I mean, it, the, the geography's got to be more or less accurate, but you can just be totally impressionistic anyway. And that's what I found in, in writing Trust. Um, so there wasn't, in some ways, it wasn't such a great uh, difference between writing that book set in Sydney and, and the other three that are set in, well, Scrubland Silver and Treasure and Dirt are all set in fictional towns, but they're all set in real landscapes. The town in Scrublands, Riversend, is out on the Hay Plain. Silver, Port Silver in Silver is up on the far north coast of New South Wales, somewhere heading up towards Byron Bay, right? Or, and uh, Finnegan's Gap is out far west of New South Wales, up near the Queensland border, somewhere west of Lightning Ridge. So you can, you can take the elements of the real places, the real landscapes, the ones that suit you, and then you can ignore the ones that don't, and you can add a few more in just to spice it up. It's interesting that you mentioned about taking like the towns are fictitious, but the landscapes are real, and then you kind of tinker or tailor with it according to how it's going to best suit the plot. You also mentioned there as well, Chris, about how it somewhat informs the characters and allows them to sort of interact with the environment. And I found that particularly, I like the way in which um, Finnegan's Gap was sort of introduced through the two characters, the two, two new sort of main characters, um, Ivan and Narell Nell. And so Ivan's never been there before. Nell has, but hasn't been there for a long time. So that, and again, kind of allowed you to play with sort of the different contrasts of how they're sort of seeing the land and stuff like that. That was what it sort of stood out for me kind of straight away of how you sort of introduced it. Yeah, I mean, it's, in some ways, that makes it relatively easy if you're describing, you know, if the place is new to the, uh, to the protagonist, then mm. it's new to the reader and they can discover it together. Whereas, you know, you walk down the street of your hometown and you don't describe it in your mind, you don't notice things because it's all so familiar. So, yeah, that, that, that's an advantage of that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I just 
thought of that. So we've talked about settings and uh, how that you've sort of tinkered with them to, to suit the plot. Let's talk about the characters themselves as well, yeah? Because there's a veritable smorgasbord of different sort of characters that, uh, that are featured within Treasure and Dirt, okay? Some of them, and I just, I'm, I'm dying to know how you start off with them because some, I'm, I'm like, I bet you any money, I'm sure I'm wrong, but I was like, I bet you any money Chris starts off with the names of some of them, yeah? Um, Bullshit Bob Inglis, Trevor Topsoil, uh, just all these sort of names. Is, is that how they start off? Because they're not... I find them unique already without you having to give them some sort of distinguishing characteristic like a missing eye or an eye patch or something. They're all just unique uh, without having to resort to those sort of messages, but the names themselves always just stick in my mind. So tell me about how you form these sort of characters that obviously inhabit the world that you've created. They're all these settings. There's, there's, <clears throat> there's quite a lot there to unpack. So let me just sort of... <laughs> okay, sorry, man, sorry. <laughs> touch on a few things. Um, I like the characters to uh, have... are not straightforward. So right from the time I started writing Scrublands, I didn't want, you know, goodies that were all good and baddies that were all bad, but, you know, good people can do bad things and bad people can do good things. Um, I often start with a more minor character, so they, they can start as just a kind of a plot point. So Ivan or Nell needs to find something out. So uh, I know I'll have someone tell them. And so it's just a mechanism for, for the main characters to find something out. But then you try and make them distinctive. And sometimes they get away from you a bit. They start growing. And, and then later on in the book, you go, oh, I should have that person come back and then they can do this and then they could do that. So they kind of evolve along with the storyline and mm. some remain very minor incidental characters and some grow more important. The names, some of the names actually change over time, uh, including in the editing, because sometimes it'll say, look, you've got this, this name. It's a little bit sounds a bit too much like this, or you've got too many names starting with M or something like that. So they can change late. Uh, some of the character names are a bit um, Dickensian, shall we say, <laughs> a little bit over the top, like Trevor Topsoil and Bullshit Bob Inglis. Um, part of that just goes back to uh, Scrublands. Mm. When I was writing it in my spare time, um, more or less as a hobby project, but possibly just getting a bit bored and coming up with these all these outlandish names. Um, and then when Scrublands was published, I thought, oh, I, uh, I shouldn't have done that. Until a reader said to me, I really like your distinctive names. Your book has um, a lot of different plot lines going on at the same time. And she said the distinctive names help me remember who's who and what's what. And I thought to myself, actually, you know, I think she's right because I experienced that myself as a reader. If too many names are the same and, you know, you haven't read the book for a week or there's a character that hasn't appeared for, you know, five or six chapters, whatever. And so then I, I, I was more or less locked into doing it anyway with, with uh, Silver and Trust because there were reoccurring characters in those books. So like Doug Funkleton and Morris Montefiore and people like that. So it wasn't as if 
all the continuing characters could have outlandish names and all the new characters have really boring vanilla names. And so even in this book, Treasure and Dirt, it is, um, uh, it's a standalone book, but it's kind of like the same universe. So there are some characters that continue on from the previous books. So for example, Martin Scarsden is mentioned in passing. Ivan Lukic, one of the two point of view characters, He's actually in the first three books, mm, but as a very minor character, he's um, the policeman, Morris Montefiore's offsider. He's back the uh, rather dim uh, TV reporter, Doug Funkleton, sort of puts in an appearance or gets a mention right near the end of the book, for example. So once again, um, I didn't think I could suddenly have all these bland names when I have these continuing characters. Uh, but also I kind of like it now. I, I decided I should lean into it a bit. I definitely like it. And I think that what that lady said to you is, was accurate. I mean, like it's automatically lends itself to making them memorable. And because there's just, there's just so many characters that, um, that naturally that you feature in your stories, it is a good way to kind of uh, make them immediately identifiable. Let's keep talking a little bit about writing of characters because I want you to talk a little bit about, because yeah, Martin Scars did not only, is Martin Scars and not the central character within this book, but he's kind of almost, um, I felt it was like a, a study in contrast in terms of the, being the opposite side of the fence, as it were, because the, the characters that you have written about, Ivan and Nell, aren't exactly fans of Martin or what he kind of potentially stands accused from or what the repercussions are from the previous events of the previous books. So I wanted to know a little bit about, because also I felt that... Um, Ivan was, was quite different in many respects to Martin Scars. And I think he says quite openly early on that he's not a people person. He's not really, it's not his strong suit going and drinking with the locals. And I felt that, I mean, Martin kind of um, just automatically by being a journal and scrubland sort of pissed some people off, but he was never kind of shy about going and talking to locals and drinking beers with them and finding out sort of information like that. So that was just one contrast that stood out to me. Tell me a little bit about that sort of thing, Chris, because it sounds like you might have had fun with kind of writing this completely different character. Yeah, so just stepping back a bit to your previous questions about character. Mm. Um, I, I like characters to have a bit of a depth, but also for them to, to be affected by events and change over a period of time. It's something that happened almost accidentally with Scrublands, but it's something that, that once I'd finished the book, I enjoyed about it. And I think some readers, at least some readers do too, and that is, yeah, get this growth in Martin. He um, He's a different man at the end of Scrublands than he is at the beginning. And again, he and, and Mandy both continue to evolve through the events of Silver and Trust. Um, and in fact, in both those books, they need to go back and confront events in their past. Uh, the reason I just didn't do another Martin Mandy book is I kind of was wearing a bit thin on their own emotional stories. Mm. Very easy to come up with, new, with a new crime or, you know, easy enough. But I didn't want them just to be sort of disinterested, sort of mechanical investigators. I want them to, to be involved and to be, and for the events in the books to affect them. So I thought I'll give them, I'll give them a rest and maybe I will return to them at some point when I've got the, the right idea let's write with someone else. So I thought I'll, I'll do a, a standalone book. Um, and it, I mean, it may not be a standalone book. It may end up being the start of a series because I think they've both Nell and Ivan have more to, 
more to uh, more to say. Um, but I wanted again for them to be affected by the events and have skin in the game. And indeed, they do in Treasure and Dirt for different reasons. Both of them find them their careers at risk. Uh, Nell from from previous of some prior events that have happened to her when she was a young uniformed officer stationed in mm. Finnegan's Gap. And Ivan is a flow on from events that, that happened when he was assisting Morris Montefiore. So they've both really got skin in the game. And I like that. I decided to go with police officers because, which was a bit of a step for me because mm. although, although Martin as a personality, I think is quite different than I am. Journalism is something I really understood. I was a journo for 30 years. So all the work pro, pro, uh, practices and the mentality of many journalists, for example, you know, I was very familiar with. We're going to police officers uh, was a bit of a leap for me because I was never, I, occasionally I do a crime story and occasionally I'd hang out with police to do stories, but actually more often you know, overseas, say Europe or Asia or America or somewhere rather than in Australia. So that was, that was a bit of a leap for me, but I think a necessary one, because if I'd, if I'd written another journo character, it would have ended up being probably too similar to Martin. Mm. So that was a challenge for me in just trying to get the, just trying to imagine, get myself inside the head of a, of, of two police officers. Uh, so an area that I wasn't so expert on. Yeah, I mean, I did see, I, I totally feel that I picked up on that as well in terms of it was a big, big, big shift for you in terms of the, not creating another character that is just another journalist and actually a police officer from police officer's perspective. So that, did you find that process to be all that sort of arduous or did you find that once you actually started writing, how does it even work with you, Chris? Like, do you have formed these sort of long sort of backstories of characters before you even start writing an actual novel or like James Elroy type thing, or do you kind of already just, do you, is it a exploratory surgery as it were with narrative? Yeah, I'm certainly not James Elroy. I know he writes like three or 400 page yeah. treatments before he starts on the narrative. No, yeah. I'm, I'm more at the, the, the so-called pants or end of the spectrum. Oh, okay. That is right by the side of the pants. It's a bit more complicated than that. I am constantly evolving the storyline. Mm. So I'll have a, a rough kind of storyline set out, uh, but not often incomplete and w without much detail because I know as soon as I start writing the narrative, it's going to change anyway because I'll get a better idea. That's typically what happens or sometimes I realise the idea that I thought was a good idea is not such a good idea or just, you know, for whatever reasons won't work. Um, but I'm often thinking about the motivation of character. So I do end up writing stuff in the background. So it's very typical, I think, for crime writers to have a kind of um, a timeline going. Mm. So not just where the point of view characters are, but what the other characters are doing and how, say, in a place like Finnegan's Gap, how different characters came to be in that town um, and past events so, and how they interact with each other. So I'm often thinking about that when I'm not writing. So if I'm out walking or, or whatever, um, there's other elements. So that's how 
again, um, Treasure and Dirt has got this fantastic map in the start, mm. but that really started just as a device for myself when I was writing Scrublands. I drew a map because it was set in a fictional town. And so I couldn't go to Google Maps and say, oh yeah, which side of the street is the pub on again? And how far is it from the river? And so I drew a map that became somewhat more intricate as I went along. Uh, and it was only, uh, I'm not entirely sure why, but by the time I submitted the manuscript to an agent, I thought, oh, what the hell, I'll put the map in there, um, which was this really crudely drawn kind of sketch. And then, you know, in talks with the publisher later, we, we decided to put the map in, you know, and, and get a proper artist to do it. So, but that's how it started. It wasn't started with the idea, oh, let's have a book with a map in it. The mm. map started as a reference point. And I, you know, all writers work in very different ways, but I imagine pretty much all writers have, have these whiteboards or post-it notes or spreadsheets and all sorts of backstories. Um, you know, James Leroy is one end of the spectrum. Who knows? And, you know, I'm, I'm told that, you know, Lee Child always just started with an idea and went, kind of went along for the ride. Uh, so somewhere in that spectrum where we, we fit in, I guess. So it's interesting that you mentioned that. I mean, so your process hasn't hasn't changed that much in, in, in all the books that you've written. It's it's kind of been relatively the same. Is it you just, you yourself are adding to a map as you're going along and kind of changing the, the plot and then someone else professionally does it at the end that the reader gets or is that what you're, what's going on? I'm, um, look, my process is changing. It's evolving. I'm probably mm. better at knowing what's, going to work, what's not picking up when things are superfluous. So with Scrublands, I rewrote the end of it uh, twice. So there was, so like, in other words, I threw out 50,000 words and I didn't polish it. I completely rewrote it, different plot lines, etc. cetera, um, which is, of course, incredibly inefficient you know, throwing out 100,000 words or something. It's just ridiculous, right? So with Silver, though, the same thing happened. I got to the end and I, and I chucked it. Not with trust, not with treasure and dirt. Um, I did throw out a lot of stuff, but I, I'm maybe getting a bit better at picking up earlier. Mm. So the stuff, that I, the stuff that I'm throwing out hasn't been gone through 10 drafts to be beautifully polished. It's been through two and it's still pretty rough. Um, so yeah, I think, but it's still essentially the same process in that I'm writing away. I get a better idea. Characters evolve, characters will say, uh, you know what? I probably wouldn't do that. Um, so it's not so much, I guess the process has changed. It's just that maybe I'm getting better at the process. Interesting. Cause I'm in like the way for me is it's like a Gordian knot of a plot, but you're the mastermind that's already got everything and you know, from beginning to end what's going to happen. And it's wild that you're saying that um, it's changing constantly. You're constantly changing it as well, because then that just lends itself to seeming like such a complicated endeavor to kind of like stay at, at control of and ensure that it's, uh, I mean, like you mentioned with the, you know, with um, scrub lines, we having a, having a bin like a hundred thousand words. 
but then something's kind of changed with the process because now you're no longer doing that and you're not, you must not be getting bogged down saying, no, nah, this isn't the story I want to tell. And now with treasure and dirt, it's kind of gotten to a point where you're, you're not suffering from those pitfalls anymore, Chris. Yeah. So I'm not, so I don't start off with this Gordian knot of a plot. I'm starting off with some ideas mm. and even, even someone like, James Elroy, who's working his entire way through that sort of plotting process and all the other aspects of the book before he starts writing the narrative. You know, his 300-word treatment doesn't come in a flash of blue light. I mean, who knows, maybe it does, but I, I kind of doubt it. So he's starting with a seed of an idea and building it up and changing it and holding it up to the light and seeing how it works. Mm. Well... Someone like me, a pants, is kind of doing the same thing, except we're doing it with a narrative rather than a treatment. So they're possibly not as far apart as it might might seem. And and with the plot, sometimes, and I'm not the only person who does this, I've heard other writers do this, sometimes you'll almost write yourself into a corner almost as a as a as a challenge, you know, a, a body's been found hanging from their toes from the harbour bridge and it's in the book and then you've got to work out after you've written how that came to be (laughs) i know that sounds kind of nuts but um is that the way you do it is that the way you that's not the way you do it where you might sorry go yeah sometimes 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 not okay yeah interesting Interesting because yeah, I feel that that would, that's that's an inherently very scary sort of way of doing it, and obviously it works for some people and it produces some gold. I, I, I will say that until I've written my first draft, uh, I'm really yeah, I, I do worry that it's not going to come together. I don't really know the shape of it. Once I've got the first draft, I've got a better idea of what the eventual shape will be, what bits can go, what bits need working on. I can then sort of take my subjective writing hat off, put on my objective more editing uh, overview hat and go, that bit works, that doesn't, uh, there's something wrong there, et cetera, et cetera. But getting that first draft done is, um, yeah, yeah, I find myself some days going, God, where the hell am I going with this? And I, and I don't end up writing anything and I go for a walk instead and try and work it out. I guess it's just about persistence. No, that's what I'm taking away from what you're saying. It's just that the more persistent you are with it, and you know, even if you need to take a break, as long as you keep coming back to it at some point, I guess that it'll unravel a little bit, no? Yeah, so it's probably the contrast between a writer that... So this is my fourth book now, mm. but of course there's... A lot of I'm, I'm still I'm still relatively new. There are writers who have been around and you know twenty or thirty books or more under their belt. And I guess the difference is if they run into a problem like that, they know that it's just a it's just a problem to be solved. It's mm. not about them. It's about the book. And I guess I'm getting to that stage. Whereas if you're writing your first book, you know, an aspiring author you run into a problem like that and you might think, oh, I, I just can't do it. I'm just not up to it. I, but it's exactly the same situation. It's just a different, different perspective. Um, so, there's a, so with me, I'll run into problems and I'll think, 
no, no, I've, I've overcome these sort of issues before I can do it again. And of course, I've got a book contract. So that's, that's both confident, a confidence builder and a panic inducer at the same time. Um, and the other thing is I'm kind of addicted to writing. Mm. So it's not like I'm going to walk away from it. I, I like, if I can, I, I, I write every day just because it feels sort of weird if I don't. It's interesting that you put it as an addiction to writing and I can certainly see that shine through the work, man, because obviously you've, you've written these books that are um, being so well received and deservedly so. What is it, that, Chris, it seems the main thing that stands out to me a lot is like the way in which you've sort of realised these locations, but they also seem to serve as the inspiration as well. What is it that keeps making you come back to these sort of... Um, and a lot of them are very different um, from book to book. What is it about the Australian landscape and these particular locations that sort of sparks your interest? And my guess is you're probably going to continue to write these sort of books. Um, I look, I think location really helps in a lot of fiction. Mm. Um, you're trying to... It feeds into... It's just not an exotic location where you dump a plot the plot has to be appropriate to the location the location has to feed into the plot and the characters so one of the reasons i first set scrublands out where it was in a small town is because there's another number of crimes emerge in the book and for a reader you're going well it's such a close location they have to be connected Whereas if it was, say, Sydney and there was a crime on the northern beaches and another one at Liverpool or, you know, Melbourne, you had a crime in Frankston and another, you know, down at Port Melbourne or something, it might seem far-fetched for them to be connected or the same people to be involved or something like that. So a small town, Scrublands was a good location because it was an irrigation town and there was no water. So that meant a desperate place, like mm. financially really on a, on a precipice. And in desperate times, people do desperate things. So it feeds into the, into the story. It feeds into the mentality. Um, this time around, it's, it's, it, it's, I find it funny because I'm often sort of cited as being, you know, a, um, a writer of Outback Noir, but this is actually my first book that's set in the proper Outback. Because Scrublands was in a farming town, right? Mm. So it was pretty drought-stricken and arid, but it wasn't really the outback. And Silver's on the north coast and Trust is in Sydney. The thing about I liked about writing Trust, kind of after I've done it, was it's a real place, but you get to imagine it. Mm. So, And if you, think of, if you think of all those books that you've read that have been set in London or New York, they're never the same London or New York. The writer is just not, they might be geographically accurate, but the writer isn't trying to give a, a, a objective overview of one of those cities. He or she is, is writing it in such a way that it evokes, you know, the, the, the nuance and the essence of, of the storyline and the characters, the atmosphere. It's like, it's like when a director shoots a movie, right? Do they use, do they shoot at night or during the daytime? Do they use blue filters? How are they going to colour grade the stock? What sort of lighting are they going to use? And that sort of 
it's feeling subliminally into you when you're watching the movie. Well, it's a bit like that with books. Chris, for you, I mean, and you're right. I mean, that like whenever you read a book, no matter what the location is, even if someone's been there or they hasn't, say, for example, your example of London, then why do you think, because a lot of people and a lot of that I've encountered that live in Europe and stuff like that have never been to Australia because they just think it's too far. There's a demon as not worth traveling to, even though it's not an inherently beautiful location. Why do you think your books are done tremendously well, deservedly so, tremendously well? What is it that appeals to international readers, you think, about these sort of scapes that you're creating? And you're right. I mean, like, this is the first sort of real outback one geographically that you've done. But I think that what you've always captured, and certainly for me within Scotland, is just this scorched earth, barren location that's just uh, pretty much kind of situated somewhere on the sun. How does that appeal to the international market and why have the books themselves, particularly your ones, uh, resonated with so many readers that are probably on the opposite side of the world? Hard to say. I think I think a lot of it would be just just the same as what would appeal to an Australian reader. I mean, mm. re- remember that what, whatever the figure is, it's like ninety five percent of Australians live within about fifty kilometres of the coast. So we don't we don't actually go to the outback much, right? Um, so it, it's almost like an imaginary place to us. Um, so. It'd be no good, for example, just setting a lousy book, a lousy story somewhere in the outback and think that it's going to appeal to Europeans. So I think, I think it's all the things that, that appeal to us. Plus, yeah, look, it's this exotic kind of landscape. And I think people read in part, not really to inform themselves, but just like a bit of an escape. Like escape. It's like going on a, a vacation, except in, in the mind. Um, and, you know, it, appeal, it appeals to us. I mean, Scandi Noir, those sort of bleak Scandinavian landscapes are terrific. Or, um, you know, Anne Cleves, uh, great books. And, she, and she's a writer that, that uh, says very much how important settings are to her books. So she does the, the Vera Stanhope books mm. and the Shetland books. And, of course, Shetland is a brilliant setting because they're these really remote, islands very cold very bleak no trees you know very very dark in in winter so there's lots of people in australia who love that or you know bell mcdermott's sort of scottish stories or whatever they so they kind of appeal to us and i think it's it's you know the opposite for, for europeans um who who uh i think it's just a somewhat exotic location Mm, yeah, I mean, it's just so interesting because obviously Australian noir and crime is, is so very popular overseas and it's always just uh, so interesting, particularly to speak to someone like you that, uh, that is doing so tremendously well with, with an international market, um, what they think appeals to the, to the audience. And I totally get it, you're right. I mean, it is a bit of, it's funny that it's a form of escapism when it's really uh, not, not particularly within your example is that gory, but like a lot of murders, most foul and stuff like that. But people still kind of enjoy it as this sort of escapism. Like, oh, lovely! I'll just take a little sojourn down to to Australia to see some gory stuff. But um, <laughs> what I wanted to talk about is what the show is sort of founded on. Is I always want to know, particularly in your example. I mean, um, obviously with you with four books under your belt, done incredibly well. Um, sold however many copies, hundreds of thousands, I think it was like 250,000 is what the media mail out said. 
I wanted to know if there was a point in your time, and this is, this could be whether it was in your, your journalism or when you were first painting Scrublands, but what sort of, if there was any sort of crossroads that you encountered whereby you were like, I could right now give up and not pursue this any further. And, uh, you know, let's not say we did, uh, or I can prevail and you did. And then subsequently you got to, to where you are now with continuing to produce all these sort of uh, works that capture your attention. And then you sort of write them on page. Was there any sort of uh, crossroads that you came to like that? Or what do you reckon? Yeah, probably several. Mm. I'm not, in some ways, I guess I'm a accidental novelist. Um, so it wasn't, some people you meet and, you know, from the age of 14 or 15 have just had a burning desire to write books and to be a writer and that's all they've wanted to do and they've stuck with it and through sort of rejection after rejection and whatever and, and have persisted. That's not really my story. I, I, I think I always had a hankering to write, um, both sort of fiction and non-fiction, but there was plenty of other stuff that I was interested as, in as well. When I was young, I, I really liked sport. Um, I liked, you know, playing guitar. I liked sort of filmmaking and photography and all sorts of stuff, right? So I did try and write a book in my 20s, a novel. Um, I liked the idea of writing the book, but I didn't actually like writing the book. I think that's a common problem. I think I think people say, oh, it'd be fantastic to be a writer. And uh, in that they like the idea that they have written a book, but they don't actually like the process. Mm. Then what happened to me, you know, many years later is I had the opportunity to write some nonfiction books, which I did. I wrote one right at the peak of the millennial drought on the Murray-Darling River system, which was then in crisis as it still is. Um, and I traveled all the way from the headwaters in Queensland down to the lower lakes in South Australia. So, but it was like travel writing and it was very impressionistic. So um, what do they call it? Narrative nonfiction. Um, and I kind of discovered, I guess, in doing that three things. The first is that I could actually do it. I could write a book because until you do, it seems like, it seems like climbing Everest. Um, despite the fact that thousands of people do it every year for you yourself. So I've, I could do it. The second thing I found out is I actually enjoyed doing it. And that was the big change that I actually liked the process of writing. Now that was part of the process there was traveling around, meeting people, going to interesting places. Um, and then the third thing I found was I couldn't make a living out of it. There was no money in writing books in Australia. So I had to go back and get a real job. Um, so, the, this is, so this is where the accidental novelist bit came in. I didn't have the time to do any more nonfiction. I didn't have any uh, money to do it. So I thought, well, I'll just, I know kind of what's involved in writing a book. And so I just, and the, the job I had was much more to do with like video production than, than writing. Um, and the writing I did was very functional. Uh, so that's how Scrubland started. It was just like a hobby um, with, with the intention of getting it published. Mm. You know, I wanted to write the best book I could. It wasn't just 
a mere indulgence, but my expectation was that it would get published. And by the time I was getting towards the end, I was thinking, yeah, no, this, this will be good enough to get published. But I was just thinking I'd have the same sort of reception as, the, as my previous two nonfiction books, which is that's good. You know, you might, might even get shortlisted for a minor prize or something, but you won't make any money. Um, and so it was only having written it and then getting an agent and then getting, you know, this kind of life-changing book deal that I kind of <laughs> found myself as a, uh, as a full-time writer. Um, at which point I then thought, I really have to make the most of this. I kind of owe it to myself. I owe it to all the writers who would love to be in this position and yet aren't, and all the people who still aspire to be in that position. Um, and, to, and kind of fortuitously, I didn't really have to make a hard decision about that because I lost my job around that time anyway. Oh, so really? it wasn't like, yeah. Uh, so it all kind of came together. And, and then writing Silver, my second book, um, a lot of people have difficulty I think with the second book mm. but for me it wasn't too bad because I was motivated um uh, Scrublands is kind of totally made up it's not I think you can have trouble with the second book if your first one is based on your own life experience or or of a particular set of unique events you know real life events um and and the other thing was this uh I just like writing and found myself becoming more and more addicted to the process. What I was saying before, I like to write a bit every day. And if you write a bit every day, guess what? After about a year, you've got a book. So it's, it's actually not, it's not a massive exercise in self-discipline. It's just something I like doing. Well, it's so good to hear that you, um, that you did persist with it even after like <clears throat> the, what you mentioned of the couple of nonfiction books where it wasn't the, the strongest sort of uh, reception compared to, to Scrublands. It sounds like you were very cautiously optimistic about or realistic about uh, the reception that you were going to get for Scrublands. And what I'm taking away from that is that it kind of uh, exceeded, I don't know this sounds like a truism, but beyond your wildest imaginings there to, to jumping forward to where you are now. Uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know it was kind of possible. I thought, I thought people, you know, um, earning good livings, writing books or something that happened more overseas. Mm. I now know it's, I mean, it's still rare, but it's not, there will be hundreds of people in Australia who are doing it, um, including, pe you know, including people writing like kids' books and YA books and lots of genre books like, you know, you find these Australian authors and you mightn't have heard of them, and then you find out they're selling hundreds of thousands of books because they're writing some kind of sci-fi or fantasy. Crime fiction writers were a little, we seem to be a little bit more mainstream. We're not kind of literary, but we're, you know, we're probably more in the consciousness of people. Mm. But yeah, no, it was, it was, um, it did come as an enormous surprise to me, an incredibly pleasant one.
that's good, man. That's well-deserved. Well, then what I want to end with, Chris, is, is an oldie but a goodie as well. I like to start with an oldie but a goodie and end with an oldie but a goodie. And you've kind of alluded to it a little bit, but I'd really like to hear from you as to what advice you would give to not just any writer, but those particularly trying to start off with a crime thriller writing, what sort of advice you might give them. I'd say, okay, for crime thrillers, I'd say, look, don't... <clears throat> Don't get too tied up in what you refer to as the Gordian knot of the plot, of, <laughs> of trying to have the plot totally sorted before you start writing. Um, there are some very good crime writers who, are, you know, Michael Robotham is probably the, the most, you know, the preeminent Australian crime writer now. And I know that he says that he's a pantser. He doesn't plot things out in advance or to, to any great extent in advance. I'd, I'd say start start writing, persist, try and enjoy the process. If you do what I do and write a little bit every day, you'll get there in the end. The other thing is, I think, just see it as, if you really want to be a writer, see it as a kind of a, a lifetime vocation. So the book that you're working on now, you should be trying to make it the best book you can. But if it if it doesn't work, that's fine. And there are so many writers that I know. In fact, pretty much the great majority of writers I've ever talked to this or heard about, they've all got at least one book in the bottom drawer. Some have several books. Some have dozens of books that weren't published. Some they haven't offered up. Some have been rejected. There's people, you know, uh, you know, with tens, hundreds of rejections. There are other writers who, you know, I mentioned Anne Cleves before, you know, international superstar. She'd had four or five books published before she was earning enough money to do it full time. Mm. Uh, Michael Connolly, the, you know, the Harry Bosch uh, crime writer, he sold uh, maybe 80 million books, like absolutely phenomenal, right? But he had four books published before he was earning enough to quit his job as a journo. <clears throat> And I think The Poet was his kind of breakthrough book. So I guess that's a very long-winded way of saying persistence matters. I mean, I had my a book or two that, you know, in the bottom drawer from early in my life, and then I had my two um, non-fiction books. So I guess when Scrublands came out, you know, it's a bit of an overnight sensation. But if, I think you find a lot of overnight sensations there's probably a lot of work they've done in the background before that. No, nah, spot on. And I mean, I think that you're totally right there. And there's a lot of people that I've met that have a lot, a lot of, um, a lot of ones that are sitting in drawers have been knocked back. I've, I've written somewhere eight or 10 Chris, and they're just like yep. the varying degrees of awfulness and stuff like that. But now I'm starting to hopefully do a bit better. And but um, do you feel, do you feel like you're getting better though? Yeah, I do. I do. So that's, I do. that's the important thing, right? Do you know what it really took me a long time to kind of, um, to kind of figure out is uh, to not use $100 words. To not, not just because just you know this word that's just so $100-y, don't, uh, don't use that when you can use a much more basic word or no word at all, yeah? It took me a long time to try and wrap my head around that you've got to put as much as, as you can on the page with as few words as possible. I reckon that's what it took me cheeky 
15 years, 15 odd years I've been doing this to try and even wrap my head around that sort of stuff. Yeah, I, I reckon um, I've been guilty of that a lot, sort of overwriting. Mm. It's one of George Orwell's rules of, of writing. So he, of course, is the author of 1984 and Animal Farm. And one of his rules is never use a big word when a small word will suffice. And it's, and it's, it's so true. It's the power of the story is the important thing. Not, not, never, never try and impress people when you mm. write. I think that's I think that's a good rule because if you're trying to impress people, you're tempted to, to to show, you know, don't don't use obscure words, don't try and show how smart you are by inserting literary references and that sort of thing. Yeah, it's it's, and and you're right. Sometimes, or often, it's what is left unsaid that is more mm. powerful than what is said. Man, that's so true. That's so true. But look, Chris, been an absolute pleasure talking to you, man. I'm so glad to see that you're doing doing well, killing it. Um, I cannot wait to see what you're writing next. I love the I love the standalone meeting. Um, Ivan and Nell. I just I'm just keen from whatever comes out of your pen next. Keep doing what you're doing. I, the rest of Australia, the world abroad, very much enjoys what you're doing, man. I think that's what you can take away from the figures and such. But yeah, absolute pleasure talking to you. Great. Thank you so much for, for having me on for a chat. Thanks, Chris. So everyone, there you have it. That was me talking to Chris Hammer about his new standalone novel, Treasure and Dirt, as well as touching on some of his other work there, starring Martin Skarsden, his uh, famous journalist character. Um, absolute pleasure to talk to Chris about his craft there, Australian noir craft, um, about Treasure and Dirt as well. And to that end, I'll also put into the link slash bio of this particular episode the link for Alan and Unwin, Chris's publisher. So you get a copy of uh, Treasure and Dirt along with all of Chris's other books there, Martin Skarsden starring books. So get a copy of them as well. Check out all of his work, his Ovia as it is. Again, huge thanks to Chris for appearing on the program, talking to me. Huge thanks to you, dear listener, for listening to this particular episode along with all other episodes there and that ever-proliferating uh, back catalogue there available to listen to on spotify or soundcloud wherever you're listening to this on thanks each for going back and listening to all those episodes as well really like seeing those numbers climbing from stuff that's getting kissing close to a year old it's really good nearly celebrating the uh the podcast's first birthday and what better way than to see those numbers always swelling so that's an awesome thing to do and see so thanks heaps to you guys for your patronage there it's much appreciated um I've only got two more episode, two more episodes, two more guests of the program for this year by my count uh, so far for the year to, to wrap it up. So stay tuned for those as well. I'll probably check in intermittently throughout the course of the next couple of weeks, months, tell you guys what I'm reading, maybe even what I'm writing about, uh, and maybe have a couple of more other guests. Who knows? I, you know, everything is just uh, delightfully unexpected as to what's going to develop in the in the future but in the interim thanks so much for listening to this episode and yeah everyone have a good happy and safe day enjoy in sydney if you are uh, if you are able to within the restrictions that are still around or whatnot provide your fully vaccinated go out and enjoy life uh, and my thoughts also go out to my friends uh, in melbourne certainly been through what you've been through um keep doing what you're doing with getting vaxxed and trying to get it sorted we'll beat this thing but in the interim everyone have a lovely and safe day thank you